Good morning, everybody. Have a seat. Good morning. My name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma Church, and many of you are probably wondering who is up speaking with me this morning, because almost every time I speak, I have someone speaking with me, but this morning, it is all me, and the reason why I'm speaking alone is because this is a message that I very much personally want to share with all of you. I'm going to talk about something um, personal to me. I think it's something that will resonate with everybody here. We're going to be spending some time in 1 Kings 19 this morning. That's page 171 in the Blue Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, please take that with you as our gift to you. But page 171, I'm going to get to that in a minute. But before I do, I just want to preface everything else by saying this morning that I, I get depressed. I get depressed. And I'm going to say that out loud, and I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not embarrassed by that. Um, it's a thing that, had, that happens to me regularly throughout my life. It's a thing that happened to me even this week, and there's all kinds of factors. And one of the reasons why I am not going to hesitate to say that out loud, to say those words to everyone, is because oftentimes in church, especially in um, circles of, of evangelical church, we don't want to always talk about mental health issues. And part of the reason is because the fear, I think, that some people have is that we won't deal with the concept of sin, right? Uh, sin is the cosmic altering rebellion against Almighty God. That is true. That is what sin is. But it is also so pervasive and so complete that it affects every element of who we are. It affects our bodies. It affects our minds. It affects our souls. We are one continuous person as people. We're a unified whole. And so sin has corrupted everything. It's corrupted our environment and our universe. It's corrupted the systems and structures. So here at SOMA, we will talk about things like trauma and addiction and depression and abuse and mental health, not because we reject a doctrine of sin, but because we acknowledge sin in all of its fullness, in all the ways in which our rebellion from God has corrupted us and taken us apart from his plan for us. So I get depressed. I do because I'm a sinful person living in a sinful world. And one of the consequences of that can be crippling depression. And it's because I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture that I'm not going to hesitate to use all the tools at my disposal to talk about that. The word of God is living and it is active and it offers us guidance and framework even to discuss things like mental health. It's not a textbook for sowing wounds, but it provides us moral and spiritual imperatives that say we need to both heal and seek God's healing, right? So I do believe that the root cause of all human misery and all human suffering is sin and rebellion against God. But I also don't believe that all the suffering in my life is caused by my own personal sin. Some suffering, some physical and emotional pain is caused by the sin of other people. And if that's true, we all need to offer better techniques to suture up wounds than just saying go and sin no more. So yeah, I get depressed. And my problem is sin, but it's not always even just my sin. I believe in the consequences of abuse because 
we, we've sat and wept with abused women. And I believe that sin so corrupts our bodies that addictions take root down deep inside of us. And repentance is always the first step towards liberation. But even honest and broken hearts are going to languish under physical consequences of chemicals and substances that will destroy our body and corrupt our will. And so that even when we believe in redemption, we acknowledge and own that there's a place for therapies and techniques to help bolster and strengthen souls surrendered to God. And because I believe that sin is real, I believe that the systems that we create as human beings, the government structures, the social structures, the informal structures, those are also broken and corrupted by sin. And so it's easy for me to say that I see trauma when I talk to my brothers, especially my young African-American brothers, who show signs of PTSD from dealing with a world that gaslights them into thinking that they're the problem at the same time their own bodies are being threatened. So sin, yeah, sin, absolutely sin, but above all, the word of God cutting through our pain, our deceit, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The scriptures are calling us to hear God's voice today, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So, yeah, I'll use techniques and words and worldly disciplines as tools come underneath the power of the word of God and the truth. These things are helpful and constructive when they're used with skill and with wisdom and when the right plans, as God lays out in his word, are followed. And they are destructive and deadly when used incorrectly, just the way I could take a hammer and use it for good or I could take a hammer and use it for wickedness. So all the tools at our disposal. So yes, I get depressed. And I'm going to say that, and I'm not ashamed to say that. So this morning, as I talk about Elijah and 1 Kings 19, I just want you all to know that I'm approaching this as very personal. This is a passage that has strengthened me, encouraged me, and saw me through some really deep and dark hours. And I share it with you this morning just as as a gift, as a, as a friend, as someone who knows that there is power and truth in these stories. We've been talking about this whole idea of Sabbath and rest, just as a regular ritual part of our lives. But there are moments in which we have pushed so hard for so long, we have fought such a good fight against such impossible odds, that we are just so overwhelmed with exhaustion that you just feel like you can't, can't look at some of you people. You just feel like you can't go anymore. It's just too much. You're overwhelmed. Elijah was a prophet of God, God the Most High, and he lived in a day in which there was an evil, mad king ruling in Israel. An evil king that sought to steal and lie and corrupt. And he had an evil wife, and there was this evil man, this evil woman, and they ruled Israel And they took the whole nation astray. Just evil people worshiping false gods. And Elijah stood up to them. And he called fire down from heaven to prove the power of Almighty God. And the people rallied to his side. And he he put false prophets to death. And he had this moment on a mountaintop of supreme victory. 
But even after the fire rained down from heaven and God showed himself strong, he revealed himself to be God before Israel, the mad king was still on the throne. Ahab, the king of Israel, was still in charge. And his wife Jezebel was still as crazy and evil as ever, even after God had shown himself to be true and righteous. Even after all the people saw that there is one true God in Israel, and he is the Lord. Even after that, the mad king still had the throne. And so we look at 1 Kings 19.1. And we're really just going to work our way all the way through this chapter today because I got nothing else for you except this. Ahab told Jezebel all Elijah had done, how he'd gone up the mountain, how he'd put the prophets of Baal to death, how fire rained down, And how he killed all the prophets of the sword. And then Jezebel, the queen, sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Despite all of his victories, despite standing strong in the face of impossible odds, Elijah was still receiving death threats. He was still, at the end of all of his good work, still found himself at the point of a sword. Because even when we work hard, even when we do what the Lord has called us to do, there are still going to be critics. There are still going to be people who are out to get us. There's still going to be opposition. There just is. There's no end to it. There's no final victory. And I think a lot of times we feel like, oh, If this and such thing could only just happen, then I'd be vindicated. Then I'd be proven right. Elijah was proven right with fire raining down from heaven, and it didn't matter. So you can imagine how he felt in that moment. He's The Lord has sent rain. He sent fire. Everything Elijah said would come to pass has come to pass, and they're still out to kill him. So you can imagine how Elijah felt at the end. Then he was afraid. And he rose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. He was terrified. He naturally felt afraid because now there was going to be the retribution for all of his standing up for the Lord of Israel. He was still under a death threat and he was terrified and fear has real consequences on us physically. One of the things that we learn about when we talk about trauma, when we talk about real experiences, is the adrenaline that overtakes us when we get into a fearful state. It, it, it wrecks our body. It gives us the power to go running for miles and miles like Elijah did. He hightailed it out of there full speed ahead, and he just ran frantically. But meanwhile, all of that natural, life-saving adrenaline that's running through his body, it's also wrecking him. It's destroying his emotions and it's destroying his body. And that's where a lot of us find ourselves. You go through a real crisis, a real trauma, something really, truly horrible. And even when it's over, you can't calm down. You can't relax. You're tense. You're jumpy. You're still shaking. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is where Elijah finds himself. In verse 4 then it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die. 
He left his servant behind. He ran. He went, about, he went off by himself, and he just said, God, kill me. Just kill me. Now, remember, he's running for his life, so I guess if he really wanted to die, he could have just hung out where he was, and Jezebel would have taken care of that for him. So we know that this desire to die, we know this isn't real. He had just run for his life, but this is how he feels. He is so depressed. He is so exhausted, so shaken to the core of his being that he just asked God to kill him. And he says, it is enough. That's it. I've had it. That's what he says. I've had it. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He felt in that moment supreme defeat. He felt shame. What am I doing? Why am I so scared? I know God's powerful. I know God is real. I just saw the fire rain down. I just saw him bring the rain. I know he's real. I know he can save me, but I'm running for my life and I'm scared and I'm tired and I just want to die. I'm just, I'm garbage. I'm no better than my father's. I'm just like everybody else. Even though he had done all these great things for the Lord, the feeling that it wasn't ever going to be enough and that he was just like everybody else, it, it, just, it just overwhelms him. He had emotional exhaustion. Kill me now, Lord. Physical exhaustion. He passed out. And he had spiritual exhaustion. I'm no better than my father's. On every possible level, Elijah had had it. He was spent. And this is the response of our God. And he laid down and slept under a a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. In the Old Testament, when we talk about the angel of the Lord, this is also a this is often a a manifestation of Jesus himself coming in physical form before he's ever born. And it happens throughout the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord comes. Jesus himself comes to Elijah, collapsed and exhausted. I'm sure he's cried all the tears that he could cry. He's too tired to even move. And Jesus wakes him up, and he doesn't say, repent for your faithlessness, Elijah. (laughs) He doesn't say, Elijah, you're no better than your fathers. The answer, yes, it's sin. It's always sin, right? It's always sin. There's always sin at work creating the circumstance in which this man of God is persecuted, in which this person's fleeing for his life. So yeah, sin is there, it's present. But Jesus isn't saying, go and offer me a sacrifice now. Repent and get your heart right. He says, here's some food, why don't you eat it? Here's some water, take a drink. And then after he does, he goes back to sleep again. And Jesus wakes him up again, says, eat a little bit more. The journey's too great for you. Man, the mercy in those words, the mercy in the acknowledgement, 
that the journey is too great. Brothers and sisters, the journey is too great for us. It just is. You're never going to be enough. You're never going to be strong enough. You're never going to overcome all the mad kings and all the mad queens. It's too great. And Jesus says, eat some food. Take a nap. Get some rest and prepare for what's about to come. Verse 8, and he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Notice that the journey didn't just end. Jesus didn't just say, hey, well, that's a rough go. Why don't you just hang out here and it's all going to be good? He said, no, you've got got a long way to go yet. (laughs) He gave him just enough to go another 40 days and 40 nights. That must have been some cake of bread that he ate. (laughs) Some kind of power protein bar or whatever. He gave him just enough to go another 40 days and 40 nights out into the desert until he finally comes to a cave. There is a role in our life for journeys in solitude. I think one of the struggles that Elijah has, and we'll talk about this in a moment, isn't solitude but but legitimate loneliness, and we'll talk about the difference. There is a time, a place, where God asks us to get away and be with him. But it's when he asks us to do it. Elijah sends his servant away and runs off by himself. It's a bad plan. It's almost always a bad plan, but it's everybody's first instinct, right? They're out to get me, I'm gonna run. That's my natural tendency, right? My natural tendency is always to cut and run. I, I constantly want to just like give up take my family, go far away, and just live in a hole somewhere. Like that's, that's my little wish dream that I get into when I get depressed. It, it's a really bad plan. I don't recommend it. And it left Elijah wanting to die. But having said that, God says there is a place for a journey and there is a time for solitude. All of these things, journeys and solitude, they are tools not solutions in our life. They don't solve any problems, but they can be useful tools for a time when we want to quit and give up, and God says, okay, spend some time with me. Get alone. As we read then, verse nine, then he came to a cave and he lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What a, what a beautiful question. God shows up and he just says, brother, what are you doing here? What are you doing in this cave? And Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even only I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Everybody hates me. Why are you doing this to me, God? That's the tone, I think, that Elijah's using right here, right? He's saying, God, hey, I loved you. I served you. I did everything right. Why are you doing this to me? One of the beautiful things about God is that is not a question he is offended by. Elijah asked that question of the right person. Ultimately, it is in God's hands. Elijah knows God could have taken out Ahab. He could have taken out Jezebel. And eventually he does. 
deal with both of them pretty severely. So Elijah knows God has the power to save him, but he's chosen not to, and he's throwing in a little bit of a temper tantrum, but he's putting that right back at God's feet, and he just says, hey, I did everything you asked. Why do they still want to kill me? And I think that on some level, Elijah knows what's wrong here, and we'll see why in a second. I think he knows on some level he's being petulant. I think on some level he knows that he's like a kid talking to his parent and he's whining. And God's response for dealing with Elijah's sin and Elijah's lack of faith was to smite him. It was not to smite him. He says in the most beautiful way possible, verse 11, and he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Leave the cave Come and face me like a man. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broken pieces, and the, and the rocks broken pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, a still small voice. God sent Elijah the physical manifestation of what he was feeling, right? He was feeling the wind, a tornado, a gale force hurricane beating down on him. And God wasn't in that. And he sent an earthquake, something that rocked his world so bad that it broke apart the very rocks that he's standing on. And God wasn't in that. And he sent down a fire, hot and strong, that would have burned everything away, and God wasn't in that. In none of those things was God looking to punish Elijah for being whiny and petulant and saying, God, I tried to serve you, and now everybody wants to kill me. God wasn't in any of those things looking to destroy him. Instead, he comes in a small whisper, barely audible. And when Elijah heard it, He wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there is a voice to him and it said, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? God was not full of anger and wrath at his faithless prophet. He was not looking to destroy Elijah or cut him down to size for being overwhelmed with the things that were happening to him. Instead, he just asked him the simple question, what's up, man? What are you doing? Really? What are you doing here? And Elijah repeats himself from what he said earlier to the Lord, but I think this time his tone is really different. Verse 14, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And even I, I'm the only one left, and they seek my life to take it away. It's the same words, right? But I think it's probably the tone that's really changed this time. It's not that Elijah was wrong the first time when he asked God all those questions. But the first time, he was asking God in a way that was accusing God, this is your fault. 
It's your fault that I'm running for my life. It's your fault that everybody's out to get me. And then after encountering God, the real one true God of Israel, who shakes the earth and blows the wind and calls down the fire, but speaks in a small whisper. After meeting that God, he asks God the exact same questions. Only this time I think his spirit is broken and different. And now he's saying, hey, I I can't do this. I need help. (laughs) I'm drowning here, God. I've done everything I know how to do. I'm out of answers. I know I've been there. I get there pretty often, actually. I know a lot of your stories. I know a lot of you have been there in your life at times in which you feel like you've done everything you can do and you're you're just out of answers. You don't know where to go anymore. And it's not that you want to be faithless to God. You know he's there the whole time. But you just, you're, you're at your wit's end. You're at your, on your last straw. And what I think what God says in that moment is, is really, really beautiful. The Lord said to him, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Go back. Go back on your way, God says. You've had your solitude. You've had a good long nap. You've eaten something. Now it's time to go back. Only this time, I'm going to send help. He says, go and anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, son of Nimeshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, Abel Moloch, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Help is on the way. That's what God tells him. God tells him, I'm going to protect your life. And I will deal with the unrighteousness in the world. The mad king will leave his throne. One way or the other. I'm going to send one guy. I'm going to send another one. And then my prophet will take care of the rest. I will protect you. I will send help. But even beyond that, there's 7,000 people who haven't bent their knee. You're not the only one in the fight. You're not the only one that I've called to do right. You're not all alone in the world. It's not you and me take everybody. There's actually others. There's actually a lot of others. You're not all alone. Even when it feels like the whole world's gone crazy. Even when it feels that everybody's against you. God tells Elijah, you're not all alone. Verse 19 says, So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was on the 12th. And Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? This is a really interesting exchange. God has said, I'm going to send you this companion, a friend. You can't do battle alone forever. Yeah, loneliness is real. Feeling like you just, it's you versus the world. That is going to wear you out and destroy you. So I'm going to send you someone to walk along your side. And God tells him who's, who it's going to be. And Elijah finds Elisha. 
And he's out there plowing with all these yoke of oxen, which is, he got like 12 yoke of oxen, which is a lot of oxen, which means he's got um, money and property. And he says, hey, I'm just going to go back and say goodbye to my parents. And you can even hear the resignation in Elijah's voice, like, like yeah, right. Okay, that's fine. Go, go back. I'm never going to see you again. I think that's the implication there. We see this, Jesus said this to somebody one time who was, he had called to follow him. And the guy said, oh, let me go bury my father first which was a way of saying, hey, just wait till my dad dies and then I'll, I'll come with you. And Jesus is like, hey, man, if you're gonna go and do that, you're not really ever gonna follow me. And I think there's that sense in what Elijah's saying to Elisha. What have I done to you? Like, all I've done is given you God's blessing and calling and told you to come along. And he's doubtful whether anybody else is really gonna ever pick up that mantle and walk along with him. And Elisha's response is beautiful. And he returned from following him, verse 21, from following him, and he took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. He basically burned it all. Think about that from Elijah's point of view. Sacrificed everything, left alone, shivering, wanting to die in the desert. And now God's brought him somebody to walk alongside him help carry his cloak and that person is so committed that he burns his oxen and his yoke he sacrifices it all to God and he says hey I'm I'm in brother I'm walking with you I'm going to I just I take so much comfort from this because I get depressed and I get overwhelmed. And sometimes my depression is my own stuff. And sometimes it's caused by my own sin and my own lack of faith. And sometimes it's just caused by just being exhausted. Sometimes it's caused by standing up and trying to say the right thing too many times and just get feeling like you get kicked in the teeth for telling the truth. That gets exhausting. It makes you weary. And to know in those moments... That God is saying to me, like he said to Elijah, dude, take a nap. <laughs> Lay down, take a nap, eat something, you'll feel better in the morning. That helps. And knowing that God is saying, come be in my presence and listen to me. And the storms and the fire and the wind, those aren't me. I'm not in those things. Those are just things that are happening. I want to talk to you. And yeah, I'll take responsibility. But also, kid, you're not alone. You think you're alone. You feel like you're alone. But you're not alone. There's a whole lot of other people. And then finally, he says, get some help. <laughs> Stop trying to carry all this by yourself. Get some help. We talk about Sabbath rest. We talk about it as a way of life, as a ritual that's part of who we are. It's something that we do repetitively, repetitively to recharge and re-energize. But please know that we never want to talk about this idea of Sabbath rest. Like that's going to be the end all and be all. And that there's going to be, there's not ever going to be times in which it feels like, okay, a quiet Sunday afternoon is just not nearly enough. It's not nearly enough to take care of everything that I've been dealing with. And even in those times, 
God is still calling for rest. And he grants it graciously to Elijah. And yes, he does call him back into the thick of it. He does have to go back to Israel. He does go and appoint opposing kings. He does bring more conflict down the road. But this time he's not alone and he knows he's not alone. I want to encourage all of you today as we come to a time of communion where we eat and we drink something. Real bread that satisfies. Real drink that quenches our thirst. That this is a symbol of what God does for us. Yeah, it's the body, it's the blood of Jesus Christ. And when Elijah was there hiding in the desert under a tree wanting to die, Jesus said, here's some bread. Here's something to drink. Right there, present with him. So this morning, if you are overwhelmed with the fight, if it's just been going on too long with too little help, eat something. Drink something. Rest. Take your complaints to God directly tell him, hey, why are you doing this to me? He may not like your attitude. (laughs) He may ask you a second time to try that again with a little less sass. But he will send help. He won't leave you alone. He'll come and visit you himself. And he'll let you know there's a lot of other people in the fight with you. He'll bring other people to your side. If you're a believer, come, eat, drink with joy. Um, I'll be standing in the back to, to pray with anybody that wants prayer, for anybody that's looking for just help or people to come alongside them. That's, that's what we are. That's why we get together each week, to remind ourselves that we're not alone. Because if we didn't, we'd start to feel pretty Lonely and pretty isolated. We'd wind up at a cave and in a ditch pretty often. So yes, yeah, I, I get depressed. I really do. But I am not without help. And I am not without hope. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, you are great and you are good. And Lord, we are tired Lord, and we see the wickedness in the world around us, and we see evil in all sorts of places, in ourselves, in our communities, in our country, in our world. And Lord, we're just tired. Lord, and I thank you that you give us real food to nourish us and sustain us. And I thank you that you are along for the journey because it is too great for us. It is just too much for us. And Lord, I thank you for preserving a remnant of those who don't bow their knee to idols. And Lord, I thank you for giving us friends and prophets to come alongside and walk with us. Speak to us today, Jesus, in that still small voice. And help us to hear your will for us.